0: Welcome to episode number 18 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal and near-death gliding video from New Zealand, that's gone viral. What, if anything, can we learn from this incident? Gliding guru G. Dale gives us his two cents worth. And an interview with Bernard Ecke, the gliding legend behind Advanced Soaring Made Easy. We talk to him about Edition 4.1. On Gliding Club Confidential, we go to the QNM Gliding Club, nestled in the foothills of the Canadian Rockies spectacular scenery and spectacular flights. And we turn back the hands of time to 1964 and a diamond cross-country flight in a K-6. It was a year when there was no Department of Homeland Security and Canadian glider pilots could fly across the border without the additional risk of getting shot down. That's all on episode number 18 of The Thermal. It's a gliding video from New Zealand that's gone aviation viral. A student and instructor flying in a DG-1000 from the gliding Manawatu club enter IMC conditions and barely survive a close call with terrain. Portions of the recorded flight were posted to the internet. Civil aviation authorities in New Zealand are looking into the matter and Gliding New Zealand has put out a press release that states... Following the narrow escape after exiting cloud, the glider was outlanded safely and both pilots were physically unharmed. The aircraft was thoroughly inspected by a rated engineer using protocols provided by the manufacturer and was found to be undamaged. A pilot debriefing and gliding New Zealand investigation of the incident was undertaken. The short version of the video is all over the internet. Just search for NZ glider almost crash and you can see for yourself. G. Dale has been on the Thermal Podcast a number of times. He's a professional gliding instructor, coach, and author of The Soaring Engine. G. also spent many, many hours flying in the mountains of New Zealand. I reached G. Dale at the Lasham Gliding Centre in Hampshire, UK. G, thanks for uh, coming back onto the Thermal. Now, what's your reaction to this video that's gone viral?
1: Oh, it frightened me to death. i a long time ago, I had a similar experience, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute. And um, I really know how easy it is to get into that sort of a situation. And the, the, the trouble with all these all these um, incidents and accidents and near escapes and, and not escapes, the trouble with this situation, it's like climbing a tree. You climb up a tree, you climb out on the branch, you climb up a bit, you climb up on the branch, and you climb out a bit, and you climb out a bit and it's all fine and then the branch snaps and then suddenly you go from just about tenable to an absolute nightmare situation so uh, you've had a yeah,
0: lot of I, experience flying in that part of the world how and i'm not a mountain pilot so i'm i'm asking this to actually get in a bit more informed on this situation how does this happen in the first place like why would you launch when the conditions are like that
1: Mm -hmm. yeah well i don't think it looked like the cloud was on top of the hill it it looked like the cloud was just on or just off the top of the hill rather than the hills were solidly in cloud because there was clearly some space between the hill and the cloud otherwise they'd never have seen the ground in time to not hit it Mm -hmm. um i've flown in those conditions i mean if you find those aren't real mountains. I mean, the the, the, the video starts with glider at forty three hundred feet, so they're not real mountains because they'd be underneath the tops of real mountains. They're just hills, big hills. Right. Um, up, in, up in that part part of the wood, I'm not sure if they were on the Kaimai. I've flown up and down the Kaimai. They're uh, on the order of uh, fifteen hundred to two and a half thousand feet tall, something like that. Then they're not like six, eight, ten thousand foot mountains. They're, they're big big ridges. Um, but uh, yeah you go flying, just be careful. I mean, we, we, fly, in, we fly in difficult weather. I, I've flown in wave in difficult weather. Um, I've flown in wave when if you... Certainly, if you'd taken a video out of the cockpit, some of the flights I did in the Marimer, you could make it look absolutely lethal. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, the, the camera's only looking in one direction. That That cloud sitting on the hill was clearly a lump of cloud sitting on the hill... It would have been clear off to the right. I'm absolutely sure it would have been completely clear look at, looking off to the right, looking at the way the cloud was forming. I've spent many happy hours sitting over 8 cloud with the mountains in the top of the cloud, knowing that um, you know we had such a stupidly good escape route, you, you could dive down at an angle of 20 degrees and clear the cloud. And you, there was no way you were ever going to dive go into the cloud. Right. And, it looked to me like the instructor was sitting there with the student flying, thinking, yeah, no way we're going in this cloud. This is this is safe enough, which is... I'm talking about climbing up the tree, you know, edging out along the branch.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a so good analogy. I, I'd,
1: I'd fly in those conditions. I'd be sitting in the back seat happy, but I'd be watching the guy in the front seat like a hawk because the one thing you do not want to do is descend into the cloud tops. Mm-hmm. Absolutely don't want to do that. And, and there was a moment where the concentration slipped they thought they could sneak over the top of the cloud to the next bit and clearly it didn't work and frankly it just all goes to shit from there what are you going to do you haven't got any blind flying instruments you're going to come spiraling out the bottom of the cloud if there's enough room you'll recover before you hit the ground if not you'll hit the ground it's quite simple so and, and
0: then was it just a, yeah. a question of them not paying close enough attention or the instructor is that how they found themselves in this
1: shit Yeah, it's, it's, if you're going to push it just a little bit, and, and I'd, I'd say they look like they were pushing it a little bit, if you're going to do that, you need to be razor sharp, you need to be right on it, right ready to, to take action immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, bang, bang, I'm going right now. And um, it, it just, somebody just made a little mistake. And it doesn't take a big mistake. If you're juggling chainsaws, it's really easy to cut your fingers off, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're juggling, if, if you're flying on ridges, which you've got the tops almost in the cloud, and you're flying over the cloud, you're juggling chainsaws. It can go hor- horribly wrong, and, and clearly did. Having said that, the rest of that video, I know, I mean, if you, if you look at the the sort of, CRM in the cockpit the, co- the, the, the work between the front and the back pilot with the, the, the student ending up taking over control and the instructor kind of losing it a bit I have the greatest sympathy with that, the guy in the front seat could see much more clearly than the guy in the back seat, it's a DG1000 isn't it or a or 505 yep, yeah, I I think think so, yeah. so clearly the, have you flown in the back of a 1000? or a 505, you can't see out the front, it's hopeless it's, it's, it's just about as bad as the ash you can't really see out the front if you're in really poor visibility the guy in the front seat's going to see the ground before you do and and the same with you know mishandling the airplane in the bottom of the cloud near the ground and and entering a stall spin situation if you're flying in the back seat you can't really see Mm. you haven't got blind flying instruments you're in a corner what do you do and um of course i mean clearly they're certainly the instructors are almost completely bottled out well that's it's just what happens you know i've talked i've talked a lot about the performance stroke arousal curve and how it applies to sailplane pilots this happens even the coolest person will get completely mentally frozen in a situation like that When, when you have when you have no handle to pull on that can work when you can't solve the problem then it's quite easy to kind of lose track
0: and that's the classic situation of what happened, according to the video. Anyway, I mean, we don't have the full video here, but still, I think there's enough for us to see the the interaction between the two pilots, between the instructor and the student, and to see what happened.
1: Well, the guy in the front seat was pretty sharp and comes across comes across as 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 um, a smart boy, um, but it's really hard to criticise. I've made stupid mistakes myself, mm. so. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to knock anybody else's uh, judgment. It, it you, once you've got unlucky and you've got in a bad situation, it's really hard to extricate yourself. I, I had a, I had a very unpleasant and rather similar, um, fifteen minutes or so in a borrowed K6 flying in the south of Wales on New Year's Day, something like thirty years ago bad judgment i was angling for a gliding job which i wasn't getting a lot of politics going on i really needed the job i was really stressed i borrowed this glider from the girlfriend new girlfriend you know that's stressful in itself and we would <laughs> taken it up to it is what it is isn't yeah, it? Yeah. trying to
0: be yeah been there trying that.
1: to be a cool bit yeah being there um you, you know she's still impressed so at that stage anyway so um I take the K6 and I I climb up in the wave. It's a moist, a moist, soggy winter's day with a warm front coming and snow coming out of the warm front. It's that cold, you know, snow coming out of the warm front. And I climb up to 15,000 feet without gas. Mistake number one. I haven't got any survival gear. Mistake number two. The radio won't transmit. Mistake number three. Um, There is no proper blind flying kit or GPS. There's an old um, old 57 millimeter Polish turn and slip in it, um, which doesn't really work very, very well. Anyway, so I let down, I'm a bit hypoxic, I go ghosting near one of the fingers of cloud, because all the gaps are closing up, and um, I'm hearing on the radio, time to come down, come to come down, you know, it's snowing, the clouds blow the top of the hill, blah de blah, blah. So I crack the brakes, come ghosting down near the cloud. I fly this cold soaked airframe near the warm cloud. And it ices up on the outside Bam! just instantly can't see out wow so i shut the brakes i look up i can see the glow of the sun through the cockpit i scratch the canopy nothing happens um you know scratch the canopy i realize it's out on the out- on the outside stabilize pointing into the wing bringing up the turn and slip use the compass stabilize on the sun glow bring up the bring up the compass get the turn and slip, stabilize the airplane and think what do i do now uh i open the dv panel i can't see anything but cloud because it's pointing in the wrong direction if i point the other direction i'll go downwind straight into the wave bar
2: hmm. can't
1: see do i turn right and run transverse across the wave and hope to get out do i turn downwind and hope to ghost across the top of it do i perhaps jettison the canopy no i won't be able to see then because i've only got i've only got sunglasses not goggles and it's cold out there um what do i do do i jump out um no because i'll die on the hilltop there's 40 knots down there and it's freezing what am i going to do then the sun goes out got no gps i'm in cloud it's snowing the clouds down to the ground it's halfway down the valley a so let alone the tops i've got no radio i've got no survival gear got no options so all i could do was point it into what i thought was the wind on the compass fly it at about the wind speed on the ASI, and hoped that I'd sort of gently reverse into the ground, which is essentially what I did. And I remember being so scared, I cannot tell you how scared I was, because I knew I'd completely screwed up. I was so frightened, I was shaking, and I was looking at the instrument panel. It was snowing inside this cloud, and of course the ice had melted by then, because it was nice and warm inside the cloud. But it was snowing, and I was looking at the instrument panel. The instrument panel looked like it was about 20 feet away and about, I don't know, about the size of an iPad, 20 feet away. And the snow was blowing up all around the instrument panel, including the bottom. And I remember looking at it and thinking, you are so scared Mm. you have tunnel vision. I really had proper tunnel vision. I was petrified because I thought I was just about to die. Because I know... You know, I knew about I knew what was going to happen. I was going to hit the real hill really hard, break every bone in my body, and be left on the on the hilltop. It was obvious. Anyway,
0: so the, the, that's a, a good example or a good story of how very very oh. very quickly this can turn sideways.
1: Oh, I was fine. I was fat, dumb, and happy. Slightly hypoxic, I mm-hmm. think. And I was just I was just having fun. I just just rolled the glider over and, and went peeling around the top of a cloud on a wingtip. You know, and then boff. So, yeah.
0: so this particular video from New Zealand right now, it has gone viral in the gliding world. Um, do you think it's a good thing to have the, the gliding community discuss this accident that wasn't, the accident that didn't happen? Is it good for us to talk about it?
1: Uh, it's really easy to go, go look at the pilots and go, what a dick. It's really easy to do that, and it's completely unproductive uh, because we are all able to do that. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. We are all capable of doing stupid things. chap I know. Well, um, well, British team pilot, he's glided to Australia, um, landed out in a field, damaged it, didn't turn the fuel on, so the jet wouldn't start. Should know better. Yeah, yeah. But you know tens of thousands of hours British team um uh, world champion really easy to do we can all make stupid embarrassing mistakes and that that to me is the lesson that to me is the
0: lesson now gliding New Zealand is in the process of trying to get permission to use the full video as a as a training tool do you think that would be helpful
1: I haven't seen the full video. I've only seen the horrid bit, so right. I, I don't know. It, it might prove to be helpful. Um, I'd really like to talk to the guys involved. I'd right. just love to talk to the guys involved and say, how did it, how did it go that way wrong? Mm-hmm. How did it go that wrong? Although, there may not be that much to be learned because, frankly, it's the sort of thing that, that happens time and time and time again. Only normally...
0: You don't talk about normally, it
1: afterwards, yeah. Yeah, it's quite quite interesting that they had the balls to actually put that online and, and own up to uh, own up to the screw up. Although that's like part of the story
0: that apparently the video was posted uh, without proper permission apparently so uh, I think there's... Oh a, really? Yeah, there's a whole bunch <laughs> no, that's,
1: of uh, That's quite funny. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how it it's happened. So, uh, Fortunately, most of my indiscretions from my youth went onto VHS so right. they're not <laughs> yeah. ex- they are not extant anymore. I've done some well, what did the man say?
0: <laughs> sure, we all have, and we've survived.
1: I've some questionable things. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, a bit mean. To po- I wouldn't post somebody's video if they gave me that. But I'd, I'd just look at it and go, "Yeah, lucky, eh?"
0: Anyway, so, listen, yeah, we'll we'll know. see how this shakes down. These pilots, lucky to be alive. Uh, and I think there will be lessons learned for for the rest of us out there. And I agree with you that. Uh, you know, don't don't criticize too much if you can't walk a mile in their boots, kind of thing. Because yeah, it can easily happen to all of us.
1: Well, uh, the best the, re- the best kind of response I've got to that is is, is to tell you what happened. The, the first time I went for the national coaches job, that's what I was trying to do when I I, I screwed up and clouded myself. Mm-hmm. I was trying for the national coaching role. The first time I tried for the national coaching role. Um, Bill Skull, who used to work for the uh, British Guiding Association, came up to Lasham to tell me I hadn't got the job. It just wasn't good enough at the time. And, and he came walking out across the airfield as I pushed this K-13 back across the across the grass to the side of the airfield. And the K-13 had the nose and the tail on the ground at the same time. I'd broken it in half. <laughs> so, <laughs> teaching right. somebody in We'd snapped it almost clean in half. The skid was on the ground. The tail was on the ground. We're all shoving on the leading edge. And it's going, if you think of Igor from Young Frankenstein, you
2: know,
1: (laughs) cranking across the grass, just clearly, absolutely wrecked. And I looked at Bill, and he looked at me, and I said, I haven't got the job, have I? One of those days. (laughs) Uh, Um, and You know, shit. It sure happens if if you hang around gliders, hang around airplanes, you will see these mistakes. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. seen a, a winch cable take off down the field from a launch point unexpectedly at great speed. I've had a winch cable dropped on my head. I've broken the K13 in half. I've done the descent in cloud and fallen out in the valley below the,
0: and live to talk about below the
1: hilltop, I've jumped out the glider. You know, And, and I've seen all my friends have, have done these stupid things as well. So... I have the greatest of sympathy for the guys involved. Greatest of sympathy. Thank you
0: very much for uh, coming on and chatting about this video and putting it in a bit of context for us. And uh, looking forward to the next volume of your series of uh, this, the the en- the thermal engine. And
1: uh, oh yeah, yeah. Volume four. It's um, airframes and avionics. So we have a big um, principles of flight and principles of variometry section in the appendix and then we're looking at how to manage your high-performance aeroplane, how to get the best out of it, and how to manage your high-performance computers and various and get the best out of them. You, the you let about. me
0: know when it's done, and then uh, we'll get you back on the podcast to talk
1: about it. Look forward to it. Meanwhile, I'm beavering away. The weather here is terrible, and um, and I can't sleep, so I'm getting up in the middle of the night to write, because I have nothing else to do.
0: Well, G, be productive, be safe, and uh, we will chat again soon. Take care.
1: All right, thank you Harry.
0: Cheers, Thanks, bye. G Dale spoke to me from the Lasham Gliding Centre in Hampshire, UK, where he's working on volume number four of The Soaring Engine. <laughs> this month on Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Alberta and the QNIM Gliding Club. Patrick McMahon is a longtime member and pilot, I reached him in Calgary, Alberta. Hello Patrick, welcome back to The Thermal. Let's talk about your Gliding Club, QNIM, where exactly is it located?
3: Acunum is located just south of the city of Calgary. Uh, It's about 35, 40 kilometers south of Calgary between the towns of Okotoks and Black Diamond in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Alberta, Canada.
0: So give me an idea about the local geography. You've just mentioned the mountains, so obviously you're nestled up against that?
3: Yeah, we're just on the eastern edge of the Rocky Mountain foothills, Uh, so we have hilly terrain for about 25 or so kilometers to the west, and then we have the rugged peaks of the Rocky Mountains. Very attractive to us from a cross-country, traditional cross-country perspective, is the uh, prairies to the east, so thermals beyond airspace limits at 12,500 feet, uh, and lots of area for a traditional thermal soaring, uh, as you've interviewed. Previously on the show, right?
0: One of your colleagues at the club there who flies into the states on a regular basis,
3: well, semi-regular, anyways. Yeah, but we're we're uh, talking about this as the on ramp to the Chinook wave. So the Chinook has set records for melting uh, volumes of snow within a 12 hour period. It's a very powerful uh, energy wave system, and uh, there's a right, lot so of for, so right So for now. people
0: who who are listening in other parts of the world. Uh, the, Sh- the chinook is one of those things where you can be in calgary in january and it's minus 30 and then 12 hours later it's plus 10 and the snow was melted right
3: you got it i think that's what the city relies on for snow clearing most of the yeah, time so yeah. yeah absolutely so so it's the conditions moist again air off the pacific and right. then it just yeah it gets into this low frequency wave and just drives moist warm air at the ground in the in that wave pattern where you want to be on the upside in the glider and try to avoid the downside if, uh, so so you've got the necessary. best of
0: both worlds, there. You've got fabulous wave and great thermal conditions. I'm inclined to agree, Harry. Sounds good. Now, what? Uh, talk to me about the airfield. Grass runways, any paved runways, what does it look like?
3: We have uh, two cross um, grass runways. We have a, a team of uh, volunteers that make, put it in immaculate condition. Um, we're really proud of it. 4,000 feet and about 3,800 feet nice. uh, east-west and then just off north-south, so... And how many members in your club? We're in the kind of fifty to seventy member range. So lots of room to grow. Yeah, I think a hundred number. A hundred would be a very cozy number for uh-huh. QM.
0: And what kind of fleet do you have?
3: Yeah, I think we've got a really great fleet, uh, something that we're really proud of. So we have a Piper Pawnee, two hundred and fifty horsepower tow plane. Our twins are a DG one thousand, which we use for mentoring and member development, and we have an ASK twenty one B. For our ab initio training uh, our solo pilots have the opportunity to fly a DG 300 an ASW nineteen and we have a Jantar standard two that's uh, kind of going through some maintenance uh, for us right now
0: so a, a nice little fleet it's it's small but but solid
3: yeah I think so and it's enough to encourage members to buy their own airplane and uh, park it here and and uh, and add to the to the flying activity from the club
0: now. Students, Do you have a fair number of them? What do you do to encourage them to join your club?
3: So in 2020, we launched a program we call Objective-Oriented Training. So we do actually have a a lot of students, especially this year. Uh, And what we're doing is, instead of the complicated fee structure, we just have fixed prices with a number of flights depending on the time of the year. Those flights have limited duration and they can't be carried to the following year. Mm -hmm. So this year we have about think 11 students, and we are closed to new students because we've sold out of our objective oriented training packages. We want to make sure that we can fulfill our commitment on the number of flights that are available to students uh, because we're telling them that they have to be done this year. Right. Thinking that the more flying you do, the higher chance- likelihood of getting an outcome. And if you get outcomes, the more likely that you come back.
0: What kind of impact has COVID had on your club?
3: Uh, it's been strange for sure. Uh, we, As we saw this developing and, and recognized the need to be proactive, we uh, were reviewing med- uh, chi- uh, orders from the Chief Medical Officer of Health. We put together when the province of Alberta defined its stages and made recommendations for businesses within those stages, mm-hmm. we created an operational plan informed by those stages. And we were ready to go when the province lifted its uh, limitations on flight schools. So we expect, um, at this stage where we're at today, today's uh, in the middle of July, um, we strongly recommend that pilots in two-seat airplanes wear masks. In the previous stage, it was required. Uh, We sanitize between crew changes. So when the cart comes up to hook up, we go and wipe knobs and controls handles and spoiler handles um and we do we're, we're using click and glide for our contact tracing so if you're going right. to be at the field we expect you to to register on click and glide right and we're also doing, if we're you doing the are, same thing at our club yeah so it's uh it's i think it's working um we're closed to the public right now which actually just makes it really cozy and we can really focus on the member experience and uh it gives our members somewhere to go instead no. of being cooped up at home
0: it's been a strange year but at least we're getting some flying in now patrick the 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 question I ask in gl- on Gliding Club Confidential, the last one I ask uh, every time I talk to somebody about their club, is what's the best thing about your club?
3: Yeah, and I think it's always it seems to be the same answer. So the soaring cond- opportunities, at least for Canada, are tremendous with really strong thermals, great access to wave, and twice a year we go down to the Cowley um, gliding strip or the cloudy, Cowley Soaring Center and have the opportunity to do to grab some diamond climbs. Mm-hmm. So the community that's required to make those safaris is really helpful, um, the enjoyment we share after a day of flying in great conditions with the backdrop of the Rocky Mountains uh, over a beer. It, you know, it's, it's yeah, the people, pretty it's stunning. The people pretty everywhere, stunning. it's uh, it's a great place to fly, and I, I encourage you to come out either to Cowley or QNIM when, whenever you get a chance.
0: You know, I will be in the next couple of years since so I'm gonna head back to the West Coast, so uh, I'll be flying out there. Patrick, thank you so much to tell me about, or talk to me about QNIM and your club and it it sounds fabulous.
3: Thanks for giving us the opportunity to tell the story. Okay, Patrick, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Patrick McMahon spoke to me from Calgary, Alberta. If you want to find out more about the QNIM Gliding Club, go to QNIM.org. That's C-U-N-I-M dot O-R-G. Bernard Ecke's Advanced Soaring Made Easy is one of those gliding books that belongs in every library, right beside other books by the likes of Derek Pigott, Helmut Reichman, and my previous guest G. Dale. A new edition of Advanced Soaring Made Easy has recently been published. Author Bernard Ecke is no slouch when it comes to gliding. He has over five thousand hours and at least ten flights of over one thousand kilometers. I reached Bernard Ecke at his home in Adelaide, South Australia. Hello, Bernard. Welcome to the podcast.
4: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
0: So, before we get into the latest edition of your book, I understand you're just out of a real COVID lockdown in your part of the world.
4: Yes, uh, Harry. um, The good news is that the restrictions have already been watered down again. We were doing really well here in Australia, and especially in South Australia, but a staffer at an isolation hotel got infected, and promptly spread the virus among 17 of their family members. And uh, well, our state government is now desperately trying to prevent a further spread and has put everyone who has come in contact with these people into home detention, so to speak. Right. Uh, But fortunately, our restrictions uh, were only in place for a few days. Now everything is back to COVID normal again. But the wearing of face masks is still highly recommended. Right.
0: Same thing in my part of the world where things are going sideways quickly, but uh, the vaccine can't come fast enough. That's right. So let's talk about something that's a bit more fun. Uh, we're going to talk about gliding, and we're going to talk about the the updated version of Advanced Soaring Made Easy, which is a book that so many people I know have read and, and keep in their gliding library. What's new in this edition?
4: Well, what's new... Uh, with every edition, I've uh, every new edition, I've added a few more topics, and I've also incorporated some suggestions put forward by my friends and readers. Uh, edition four is certainly no exception. It has now grown to 432 pages from memory, and it now contains favorable synoptic weather patterns for long-distance flying in various regions of Europe, Australia, North America, and the southern parts of Africa. I've flown in these places myself, and uh, I was very fortunate to enroll the help of some recognized meteorologists. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have extensive gliding knowledge in these regions, and I think it has probably increased the appeal of the book quite a bit.
0: uh, It sounds like it's uh, turning into a real sort of gliding Bible, so to speak.
4: Well, that was the intention, and uh, that's for others to judge.
0: Now, I've got to ask you, because I can hear this through my headphones, do I hear little feathered friends in the background?
4: Yes. um, Yeah, my office window is uh, facing my neighbor's backyard, and there's always a few birds uh, chatting along.
0: Well, that's lovely, because here in my part of the world, the snow is flying, and most of the birds have gone south. (laughs) I see, yeah. So, Bernard, why do you think this book has turned into such a must-have for glider pilots? What, a, what about the book that, that makes it so relevant to today's pilot?
4: Well, I wouldn't quite call it a must-have, but perhaps it should be called a should-have for <laughs> glider pilots. Um, one of the nice things one gets when uh, writing a book like this is the feedback Uh, that readers uh, give you from all corners of the globe. Mm -hmm. Uh, It makes me feel really good when pilots report that Advanced Soaring Made Easy is the most comprehensive book on gliding and that it has enabled them to fulfill their long-held dreams and ambitions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feedback like that really makes me feel that it was definitely worth all the time, all the effort and all the financial risks. Yeah. Uh, keep in mind the book is already available in four different languages, but it only exists as an ebook in uh, Japan.
0: And those four but, different la- those uh, There's four definitely
4: different... no further editions. Uh, that's definitely the last one.
0: And th- those four different languages are
4: uh, English, German, French, and Japanese. Huh,
0: Okay, well, that's pretty good. So, what what motivated you to write this book in the first place?
4: Well, what motivated me? I I was appointed uh, uh, as a coach, and I figured that uh, if I fly with uh, people, I could have only a very small uh, impact on um, improving our member retention rate. Mm-hmm. So I figured i write things down, and it has just developed from there.
0: Huh, interesting. Now, I, I have a 2007 version of Advanced Soaring Made Easy, what what will I learn if I get the latest version? Is it is it should I go out and buy the latest version?
4: Well, two thousand seven indicates to me that you probably have edition two or edition three. And if that's the case, you will be surprised when you see edition four point one. Mm-hmm. I have included a chapter on the all important mental aspects. And I also talk about the OLC as well as the latest SkySide gliding weather predictions. Okay, okay. Uh, well, that's what immediately comes to mind.
0: With Matthew. The Schutter. book has
4: grown in size and in content quite a bit, mm-hmm. and it covers uh, topics in detail that were only touched on in previous editions. Uh, quite a few customers have given their early version to enthusiastic newcomers, and ask for edition four point one as a Christmas or birthday present
0: <laughs> okay.
4: I know it's it's hard to believe, but some poor people own all editions of the book
0: now I understand this this latest uh, edition of advanced soaring made easy you you had a lot of help with some of my gliding colleagues here in Canada. How did that work
4: yeah I'm glad you brought that up harry uh, the Ex editor of your magazine Free Flight and your fellow countryman Tony Burton purchased a very early version of the book. Uh, when he found some spelling and punctu- errors, punctuation errors in it, uh, he wrote to me and offered his help with future editions. Of course I couldn't couldn't uh, knock that back and gladly accepted. Uh, and I must say that uh, edition 4.1 and edition 4. Would, have, would not have seen the light of day without him doing the editing and the page layout.
0: Right, right. He did
4: a fantastic job and even integrated some truly exceptional photos. Uh, that has undoubtedly helped to make the book today's most popular gliding literature. Um, yeah, I hope you're listening, Tony. Thanks, <laughs> thanks very much.
0: And and I understand you also had some translation help from people in, in Quebec?
4: Yes, that is also true. Um, the French version well, was done by Joe Leno, um, and um, he put his hand up and said, uh, I'm happy to do the, the French version, and uh, that is now gaining in popularity as well.
0: Hmm. Very good, very good. Now... Bernard, your, your vast gliding experience really comes through in this book. Is there any advice that, would you have, that you'd have for both budding and experienced cross-country pilots, something that, that, that would run the gamut?
4: Well, that's a, that's a hard one. Uh, I think it all comes down to two things, persistence and commitment. Uh, flying cross-country is undoubtedly the icing on the cake but too many of our new pilots never experience the joy, the pleasure, and the satisfaction that comes when you are on final glide after venturing into more remote parts of the country. Uh, Flying in the immediate vicinity of the home airfield gets boring, at least sooner or later, and it is no wonder that far too many vote with their feet. Uh, When they drop out, All our training efforts were wasted. So when I retired, I immediately got busy writing advanced soaring made easy. And if my feedback is anything to go by, it has already put many pilots on the path to success. And it makes my day when readers uh, get back to me and tell me that.
0: So so how do we get that that budding cross-country pilot to cut the... Apron strings and go cross country and go to that next level of gliding.
4: Yeah, well, that's a hard one. <laughs> um, well, the the I, I've tried to answer that that question before. Um, it, people find it hard to to uh, uh, fly out of gliding range, and uh, we need to put in a. Uh, a bit more effort in my opinion to uh, get them to, um, yeah, how can I put it, Um, risk a landing in a, in a, a place that they haven't been to before. And I think it's up to us instructors and coaches to help them to overcome that initial hurdle.
0: Right, because that is a big fear, let's face it. Everybody, you know, it is a fear that you need to overcome.
4: Oh, most definitely. I, I've i been there myself, but uh, once you've uh, done an outlanding once or twice, uh, that becomes uh, not so daunting anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is, this is true, absolutely. Now, the, the, the gliding community at large, you know, you've been involved in it for, for a number of years, just as I have as well. But well, one of the things I always come back to and ask people like you with such a vast amount of experience is what can we do to improve our overall safety record? You know, we've got all these modern computers and technology and things in the glider, in the cockpit, but we still have, unfortunately, a fair number of accidents. What, what do you think we can do better?
4: Well, that's a hard one. Uh, I think it's impossible to answer this uh, adequately in the very short time available to us. Uh, sure, safety is paramount, and safety must dictate everything we do, regardless of whether it's on the ground or in the air. Uh, therefore, I've incorporated uh, safety hints into almost every chapter of the book. Mm-hmm. I've also appended a smaller chapter on safety in general, with a focus on the many modern gadgets that you just mentioned. Uh, uh, and there's no doubt these gadgets can greatly enhance safety for all of us these days.
0: But there can also be a downside when people don't have their heads out of the cockpit.
4: True, but, uh, well, for instance, the the lightest gadgets, they give you audible warnings of other traffic. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not really a valid argument to say that uh, to take advantage of this technology you've got to have your head on the instrument panel or your eyes on the instrument panel.
0: I guess it comes down to learning how to use these devices.
4: Exactly, you're right.
0: So your flying season is just starting or it's been going on for the last couple of weeks uh, there in South Australia. What, What are you flying at the moment?
4: Well, uh, uh, what I haven't told you so far is that I'm also the Schleicher agent for the whole of uh, Australasia, and uh, therefore I'm lucky to fly an uh, ASH-30 these days. Nice. I just love it because it's, uh, it allows me to do a lot of coaching, and it allows me to share the pleasure of flying such a fantastic glider with others.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Um, I just hope that I continue to do uh, to do so for quite some time yet, because I'm still dreaming of doing a 1,250 FAI triangle over the relatively flat uh, uh, countryside here in South Australia.
0: And you think you uh, obviously just think remains
4: to be seen whether I'm still uh, whether I still got enough drive left in me. But it's definitely still on my bucket list.
0: Well, that's great. I sure hope you do it. And with you know your, your fellow countryman there, Matthew Scudder, with SkySight, you know, bringing all those technologies together, you're probably just waiting for that right weather window.
4: Yeah, that's a fair comment. I keep my eyes on the trough lines. Here in the relatively dry part of the world, uh, the trough lines can really provide excellent soaring conditions. And I took advantage of that last season uh, and had a long flight planned, but in the end I was denied uh, by air traffic control and couldn't get into an area that uh, was really developing very well. But uh, that gave me enough incentive to uh, try again this season.
0: Well, I sure hope that works for you. I'll have to keep an eye out on the OLC and see what you get up to.
4: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's another thing. I, I uh, haven't done a lot of OLC uh, um flights Uh, so this season i'll probably put more on on the olc and uh uh, let others uh, see what is happening here in this part of the world
0: now do you have any future projects in the works
4: future projects uh well uh in in terms of long distance flying you mean
0: books flying you know the stuff that you do with gliding
4: well uh not Really, I've just been elected president of a South Australian Gliding Association, and I've uh, decided that I'll do uh, uh, a bit more work in terms of helping newcomers to uh, get into cross-country flying and generally support gliding in this capacity, but uh, that'll keep me busy for a while, I'm sure. Yes, I guess.
0: Now. Bernard, before I let you go, talk to me a bit about your, your love affair with gliding. Why ha- why has this relationship lasted a lifetime for you?
4: Oh, that's another good question, Harry. Um, I guess it's the satisfaction that comes with flying an aircraft without an engine for hours on end and at the same time travel hundreds or or even thousands of kilometers. Mm-hmm. Uh, sharing such an experience with friends and like-minded people gives me a lot of joy, a lot of pleasure, and it gives me endless satisfaction. There is no better feeling than knowing that my co-pilots feel exactly the same after the flight. And it's nice when you can see uh, that I've made their day. For me, that's plenty of motivation to keep going.
0: Well, I I sure hope that post-COVID and once I can get back to uh, Australia for another visit, I would absolutely love to be able to go up for a flight with you at some point. That's going to be on my bucket list.
4: Oh, you are most welcome. Thank you very much. Just let me know when you are in this part of the world, and we'll go flying.
0: That sounds great. Bernard, it's it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Take care of yourself, and uh, I hope to see you.
4: Thank you very much for the opportunity, Harry. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Bernard Ecke spoke to me from Adelaide, South Australia. Edition 4.1 of Advanced Soaring Made Easy can be purchased online at future-aviation.com. That's future-aviation.com. If you have any trouble finding a copy, drop me a line and I'll put you in touch with Bernard directly. And now a word about our sponsor, SkySight, the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more, listen to SkySight's founder Matthew Scudder on episode number seven. For listeners of the Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the gliding club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. It was a spectacular summer's day on the 13th of August, 1964, when 25-year-old Roy Gray stepped into his K6A CFZDU for the flight of a lifetime. A diamond-distance flight that would take Roy from southwest Ontario across the US border at Niagara Falls and to Dutchess Airport northwest of New York City, a declared goal distance of 558.4 kilometers. It's a flight that Roy still revels in. I reached Roy Gray at his home in Sonora Pass, California. Hello, Roy. It's uh, really nice to have you on the Thermal Podcast.
5: Hi, Harry. Good to, good to be talking to you.
0: Bring me, bring me to that summer's day. You're strapping yourself in a, in, into the cockpit of your K6, and you're about mm-hmm. to go on this flight. You 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 figure the weather's good enough to make it all the way, almost towards New York City. What, what gave you the confidence to get going?
5: Uh... I think, just looking at, at the weather that day, uh, it was starting to uh, look good early early in the day, and the uh, the wind was uh out of the northwest, so that was the right direction uh, to get down the peninsula down towards uh, Buffalo and Niagara falls, right because in those lo- in those days we could fly across the border, and we did that relatively constantly. I can't imagine flying
0: flight. across the border today. I mean, I'd have an F-16 on my no. wingtip.
5: <laughs> no, and of course, we had no radio communication in those days. So just very basic uh, instrumentation, uh, aeronautical maps, charts that uh, you know covered it. And it was actually John Kelly that uh, convinced me I should, if I'm going to go cross-country I might as well make it worthwhile and yeah. set set a goal because we we could you know, try for a record. So we got the map out and started looking, and we knew what the current uh, record was. So we just made it far enough to uh, to beat that by uh, a small amount. I forget what it is now, something like 10 miles. You have to exceed it by more than a mile or two. I think it was something like 10 miles. So we found uh, Dutchess County Airport, uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, that would be far enough. And I think at that time in my flying experience, I still remember the feeling one time of getting into the glider. And the thing is you don't end up getting into it so much as sitting down and strapping it on It's it's almost like the reverse. You're not strapping yourself in, you're strapping this aircraft onto you. And everything is pretty uh, automatic. But uh, soaring was just something I, I guess, had an inclination to do. I felt comfortable doing it. I mean, this was one, one flight, the, uh, the goal flight, but... Uh, Your
0: diamond goal flight.
5: Diamond goal, yeah. So all, all is
0: you, you've released over Brantford Airport, I'm assuming, you know, you've got a Toby or right. a Tiger Moth or something, and you're releasing right. 2,000 feet. Did you head
5: straight east towards Niagara Falls? Pretty much because the wind w- was uh, taking us that way. And it was uh, 11 o'clock, I believe, 1110 when I took off. So things were starting to uh, look pretty good. So, yeah, I am uh, looking at my barograph chart in front of me. And the, the flight down the peninsula to Niagara Falls took about two hours. And it was, it was good, not tremendous, but good. And uh, it wasn't really until I got into New York State that I got some really strong lift. And uh, I guess one, one of the things that, that happens sometimes is you get overconfident. You get too many good thermals and you're waiting for the next good one. And sometimes you wait too long. And I almost did that, Uh, about four hours into the flight, looking at my chart, uh, I was down quite low because the terrain in New York State, it gets higher as you go east. And uh, so I ended up uh, below a 1,000 feet before I got a, uh, a reasonable thermal and started getting back on track
0: what kind of terrain were you over i mean it can be quite mountainous over
5: there as well it it's hilly it's not not really i mean not mountains like on the west coast it it's high hills mm-hmm. and they're pretty much uh, covered with bush but there there's a lot of uh, farmland in the valleys so landing places were not that scarce okay that's good they're pretty readily available um but uh, I mean, we only have a compass. We didn't. There's no GPS, so you have to kind of watch the terrain, watch for lakes, watch for major highways to keep you on track. And uh, maybe two thirds of the way through the flight, I found out that I thought I was somewhere that I was not. So I had to take the time to sort out of where I actually was. And I was quite a way south of the, the flight path that would have been the shortest distance. But I, at least I, I recognized uh, through the terrain below me where I was and was able to um, orient myself as to where Dutchess County Airport might be. But uh, I guess what was your average
0: altitude uh, during this flight?
5: Oh, just looking at my chart here, it was probably around uh, just below 7,000 feet, 6,000. But the terrain goes up to, well, the highest mountain range I went over was something like 4,000 feet. Right. So, so yeah. you're down quite low at that point. Or you, you're, not, you're not way up there. I had one one major climb, and it shows I went uh, up to more like 8,000 feet, but that was the only one out of the, uh, the average for the day. I think one of, one of the most memorable things about this flight was that nearing the end of the day and knowing pretty much where I was now but I couldn't see the airport. The airport was still too far ahead of me. And because it's late in the day, the thermals are not so active. They're not not—they're not very thermals when you find them and there are fewer to find. But uh, on my way would, would be a sort of a final glide towards the airport. I knew I wouldn't be able to make it, but I was fortunate enough to find a couple of very weak thermals, but the wind was drifting me in the right direction. So I could just circle and keep looking as hard as I could to try and figure out where Dutchess County Airport was. And the barograph chart shows kind of a long decline to fairly low altitude. And then these two little bumps that I, I drifted along in. Um the terrain was coming down at that point from 4,000 feet. It was getting down. Duchess County Airport was uh, probably less than 1,000 feet elevation. So at, at some point, I was not going up, so I needed to just head as best I could towards the airport. And eventually, I did spot it. But I ended up over the airport at less than 1,000 feet, and uh, I remember them flashing a green light at me, which was good, because I was going to land there anyway. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't have a choice at that point. No, no. And the nice thing is that it was all the day had to offer to me, because it was over. Mm -hmm. There were no more thermals, so... what time of the day was it by
0: by now? How long had you been flying?
5: Uh, I landed, I think, uh, um, it was a seven-hour, 45-minute flight. So around six, after six o'clock. Okay. Yeah. And when you...
0: Getting pretty late. When you landed, did people come out to greet you?
5: They did. Uh, I had a very nice uh, interaction with uh, a gentleman that, that came out to to meet me and uh, took me into the uh, the control room at the, at the airport and we chatted for a while and then I got a hold of my crew. Uh, I, I don't know if everybody knows how, how we communicated in those days. <laughs> do do tell us. <laughs> But the the pilot, I mean, for the cross-country flights, we always had a phone manned at the airport. And cross-country pilots would call back to that number and let them know where they landed. Well, in the meantime, the crew doesn't know where the pilot is, so they keep calling back to that number. But they did it person-to-person. So I'd get my crew calling back person-to-person for Roy Gray. And they say, oh, well, he's not here right now. They could try calling back later. Okay, thank you. I so then you wouldn't have to pay for else. the phone call. Wouldn't have to pay for the phone call. So he ended up essentially paying for one long-distance call. Except when I made the call from Dutchess County Airport, I let them uh, know that I was at Dutchess County Airport. So when my crew finally called, they said, oh he's not here, but they could get a hold of him at Dutchess County Airport <laughs> in New York. <laughs> so your your so crew we were...
0: must have started driving pretty well when you took off that day.
5: Exactly, exactly. They do that. Yeah.
0: And they and
5: I mean they're pilots themselves, so they watch the weather and they watch the wind and um so yeah, they're just hoping, keep calling back, there's no word, I'm still going hopefully in roughly the right direction. They knew where it was headed. Uh, So they just follow the New York freeway to the east and keep calling back to the airport. I mean, I'm sure the telephone company knew what was going on, especially when there's several pilots all all flying cross-country at the same time. They're getting all these phone calls back to the same phone number, and the people aren't there.
0: And and how long did you have to wait for your crew to show up?
5: You know, I don't think, I don't remember exactly, but I don't think it was that long. Probably in, in the range of an hour to an hour and a half.
0: Great. Wow.
5: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had time to go out and have dinner <laughs> with this gentleman that uh, met me at the airport. So I was in fine shape when they got there. <laughs> and did you turn Ready around to- right away and go home? <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah. That was a long yeah, day. I can't, I can't remember. Yeah, it's a long day. I, I, I don't think we stopped overnight or anything. And then we just kept driving back until we got, got home again. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, that, that was the nice thing uh, about that flight. So you set the Canadian
0: yeah. distance record, and you managed to do your own your diamond gold distance flight.
5: Right. Right. So that was my second diamond. Unfortunately, the only diamond I didn't get was the diamond altitude, the 5,000-meter gain. Right. Many uh, many of us I, are still waiting for that one. Yeah. I, I may have gotten it, but I, the, the one time in the mountain wave down in Vermont, um, I was over 20,000 feet. But, I mean, my release altitude was like 4,500 4, feet. And I probably should have had the uh, barometer calibrated, but if that well, there'd be another chance, and there never was. Right.
0: Now, now, this flight was something like 560 kilometers. That that even to this day, I mean, that's a great flight. You did it in. It a... is. Yes. Yeah.
5: But that was uh, that was the best flight. So now, I'm Roy, the, sure. this
0: this flight was almost sixty years ago. How do you look mm-hmm. back on this day was it was it one of those days that you'll never forget
5: absolutely absolutely yeah no it was uh it just all came together, and that worked out
0: thank you very much and uh okay okay, take care, Roy thank you
5: all right take care now bye safe bye-bye.
0: That was part one of my interview with Roy Gray. In part two, Roy will tell us about a contest flight that took him far away from home over a mostly uninhabited area of Saskatchewan. Roy's Diamond-declared flight of 558.4 kilometres broke the Canadian distance-to-goal record that year. That's it for episode number 18 of The Thermal. If you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at The Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's The Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering The Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.